I'm one of the one of the guys on staff here. I'm glad that you are here. We hope that you will consider uh, becoming part of the family here. Uh, we are a family, as you heard. Uh, a lot of people express thanks. A whole lot more of us could. Uh, in fact, I will. Uh, it's a blessing to be the pastor of this church. It really is, and we are privileged to be here. And we love our family, and uh, we'd like you to be part of it, especially if you're a visitor. Um, you're not a visitor, you're already part of it, and you know how good it is. So um, we're going to start a new series uh, this morning uh, through the book of Jonah. And a lot of you have probably heard uh, the story of Jonah before. Maybe it's been a few years since the last time. But it's one of the most memorable stories in all the Bible because who can forget about a man who gets swallowed by a huge fish and spends three days in his guts. I mean, that, you know, that, that tends to stick in your brain. Uh, but the story of Jonah, as, as I want us to see here in the next uh, four weeks as we, spent, uh, we spend on this, is not really about a man who is swallowed by a fish. That's, and that's part of the story for sure, but that's not the point of the story. That's not what it's about. It's about the fact that many times the same people who receive God's grace and mercy and are happy to, uh, to have it when it comes to them aren't willing to extend it to other people. That very often we divide the world into people like me who are blessed to receive God's grace, and those people over there. You know those people. Those people who don't look like me, or dress like me, or think like me, or be of the same race, or culture, or hair color, or skin color, or whatever. We tend to divide the world between us and them, between our people and those people over there. And God is going to send his prophet, he's going to commission him to go to those people, to the Ninevites. So if you have your Bible, go to Jonah chapter 1. This is in the clean part of your Bible. The part that's probably not marked up very much, right? Um, but uh, the uh, if you find uh, if you find Jeremiah, just keep turning to the right, and you'll get eventually to Jonah. Just past Obadiah. Um, if you find Obadiah, you're right there because you're only over about a page. Uh, it says this: The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, this is a very standard prophetic commission. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. I don't know how many hundred times in the Old Testament the Bible uses these words, that the word of the Lord came to so-and-so and said, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the son of Amos. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came, and, 
And in fact, this is so common that John is going to pick this idea of the word of the Lord coming in a revelatory way in his introduction to the gospel of John. You remember? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, which came to reveal God, became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen? This is, but the word of the Lord is a personal re- revealing of God himself that comes to the prophet. And the prophet gets his commission. And by the way, when God reveals himself he, the, to his prophets, they don't go into a trance. You know, they don't get high like the oracle at Delphi and then God speaks. You know, they don't, they, don't in, they don't look at bird livers and go, oh, I wonder what God has to say. No, when God reveals himself, he reveals himself verbally to his prophet. And he tells Jonah, he does something very unusual, and he tells, them, he tells him to go and prophesy to a foreign people. Almost always, the prophets were sent either to the United Kingdom or they were sent then later to the divided kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Obadiah is written to the Edomites, but the Edomites are at least a cousin people with Israel. They're these folks that were the descendants of Esau through, through Isaac who live on the other side of the Jordan River in what is now modern-day Petra, that, that city that's carved out of the rock, which if you've seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, you've seen uh, part of Petra, this rock-hewn city that the Edomites lived in. Obadiah went to them, wrote his, wrote his prophecy to them. But God says, you're to go to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, It is located between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in what is now modern-day Iraq. And these people were the leading empire of Jonah's day. Their empire was bigger in its height than the Roman Empire and only slightly smaller than the British Empire at its height in Victorian England. This was a massive civilization that ruled a massive area from India all the way to the tip of Turkey. Across Egypt, across the entire Middle East, was owned by the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah is to go to the capital. The Assyrians, by the way, were not nice people. They get their name from Asher, who is the god of war. And they were experts in war. They had the most advanced military technology of their day, uh, whereas everybody else at this period of time is using bronze swords and bronze spear points and bronze arrowheads. They had iron, and that made them very successful in battle. They had iron chariots. Uh, In fact, they had one guy who would drive the chariot, one guy who could shoot with his bow while the horses run at full gallop and one guy to guard the rear of the chariot with sword and spear. Now, I am a bow hunter. 
And I do okay within about 30 yards. I can hit, I can hit the target with my compound bow and cluster my arrows in nicely. Got it dialed in with, with Aaron uh, Gorilla earlier this year. And I do real well. Put me on horseback, on the other hand, and I'm not sure how well that would go. Uh, never mind in a chariot as you're bumping along, you know. Uh, I'm not sure how we can make this work, but these guys could do it. And they had armies that numbered in the hundreds of thousands that would show up at your doorstep. Uh, and they would measure their victories by the size of the pile of human heads that they piled up in big pyramids after the battle, and human limbs also. Uh, that was how they rated their victories, which, by the way, reinforces the idea that whatever you worship, that is going to come out in your life in some form or fashion. If you worship the God of war, somehow this is going, I mean, this is their preeminent deity that they followed. Uh, here's, the, here's the account. Let me just tell you how fearsome these people were. This is the account, the official court record of King Ashurbanipal's victory over a rebellious city within his empire. I built a pillar against his city gate, and the his is the, the leader of this particular city. And I skinned all of the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, and some I impaled on the pillar on stakes. And others I bound to stakes round about the pillar, and many within the borders of my own land I skinned, and I spread their skins on the walls and cut off the limbs of the officers of the royal officers who had rebelled. Fearsome, nasty, Wicked, evil people who worship a pagan god and take delight in flaying alive the people that they conquer. They were the ruling oppressors of Jonah's day. And in just a short time after Jonah's life, possibly even within his lifetime, we're not exactly sure how long he lived, they are going to invade the northern kingdom of Israel and they're going to haul the entire nation off into exile. They were the most bloodthirsty, cruel, nasty, pagan people that were around. And God calls Jonah the prophet to go and preach to them. Now, in the normal course of a prophetic commission, what you hear is, and the word of the Lord came to, and the prophet arose and carried out the commission that God had given. But that's not what happens in this story, is it? Let's, let's read on a little more. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed down for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the, threat, that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, 
And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down? For us. Now, Jonah's instructions were clear, were they not? Go to Nineveh, to the great city, and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before God. But his obedience was not clear. Instead of packing his stuff and heading east for Nineveh, he goes south to Joppa, where he catches a boat heading for Tarshish. Now, Tarshish technically is Gibraltar. Israel is at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Gibraltar is at the opposite end. It was the edge of the world in, uh, in, the, in the ancient world. No one knew what was on the other side of the Straits of Gibraltar. And he said, you know what? Uh, God's way is that way, I'm going to go that way. <laughs> and in fact, it, Tarshish in the, in the Hebrew imagination of this time was regarded as sort of this far-off, exotic, mythical almost place of, of kind of a Shangri-La kind of idea. In fact, King Solomon himself did not travel there, but he sent trading ships to go there and bring back all kinds of exotic things. And First Kings tells us that they brought back silver and gold and ivory and monkeys and peacocks, things which people had never seen. Bringing back tusks from an elephant and bringing back peacocks and monkeys. This is this exotic place that no one has ever been to. The Israelites were not a seafaring people. And this is on the other side of the ocean, as far as anybody knows that there is a world. And Jonah says, you know what? I'm bugging out. I'm going as far as I can get from Nineveh. I'm not going there. And it, it would be like, I tell, you, I tell you what it would be like. It would be like if God told you to go to New York City and you said, you know what, I think that I'm going to go to L.A. And in fact, the parallel is a little closer than that because in, like I say, in the Hebrew imagination, it's this exotic place of sun and sand and beauty and um, this lush paradise. 
It's what people think that they are getting when they decide they're going to pack up and move from wherever they are when, and actually go to San Diego or wherever, right? People in our country used to do that. You would have these songs about moving to California and, you know, the movement of the Okies from uh, the Dust Bowl in the 30s was all out to California. Why? Because it was paradise. And we're moving out there. Not so much now. But in any case... The idea is, is that he's going to go as far away from obeying God as he can. If there's further off spot than Nineveh, than Tarshish, then that's where he would go. But he's going to Tarshish. And as we'll see, and, and you need to see this, because one of the things that is consistently emphasized throughout this book is the sovereignty and absolute power of God over everything. And it says here that God sent, and you're going to see that phrase, God sent. God sent a storm, and then later God will send a plant, and God will send a worm, and God will send. God is sending his prophet, but now he's sending a storm on his prophet because the prophet is disobeyed. And it says that sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the, th- that the ship threatened to break up. That's not literally what it says. Literally what it says is, even the ship thought it was going to break up. (laughs) Okay, they don't render that expression in in English the way it reads in Hebrew, but it says, even the ship thought the ship was going to break up. Now, obviously, ships don't think, but it was a bad storm. This is a bad one. These are guys who are on this boat who have, this is not their first time on the water. These are sailors on top of that who have been to the place they're going before and made it back. That's how they know how to get there. And it's a bad, bad storm. And these sailors, these pagan men that Jonah is with, start crying out to their gods for salvation. Who knows what kind of gods they worshipped. But they're all crying out to Poseidon, or to whoever. Get me out of here. Save me. Don't let me die. And they find Jonah down in the bottom of the boat, in the, asleep in the hold. And they come to him and they say, Look, dude, all of us are crying out to our God, and nobody's God has answered. So since you're asleep, wake up! And call out to your God because we're going to die tonight in this storm. Call out to your God and see if he has mercy on us. And we don't know what Jonah's response is, but they they then begin to throw dice or cast lots and find out. We got to find out who's responsible for this because we know that the gods control the weather, they believe. And so somebody on, this, somebody on this boat must have done something wrong to offend the gods. Or their god in particular, because we're in a fix. So they throw dice, and guess what? Wonder of wonders. In their paganism, God is still sovereign. And the lot falls on Jonah. And they start asking all kinds of questions. So... <laughs> Oh, tell us, tell us about this. What, why are you, what did you do? 
Where are you from? What gives with the storm, dude? What have you brought us out into the middle of? And Jonah gives this wonderfully theologically correct answer. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the Lord, the true God, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. That's nothing wrong with that statement. It's all theologically orthodox. Of course, it's undermined by his actions that somehow he thinks in his fantastic wisdom, that the God who made everything, the sea and the, and the dry land, that there's some spot on earth that you can flee to and a way you can get there which is beyond the reach of God. Right? So he's theologically orthodox in his statement, but it obviously hasn't worked its way into his life very well. And this terrified them. All of a sudden, they understand the difference between the real God and the ones they've been crying out to. And they're afraid because they realize that if you worship really the God who made this and you've offended him, then we're in a heap of trouble because obviously he can get to you wherever you are. And they immediately know that there is no escape from a God like that. And they also understand that his claim to worship this God is completely undermined by his actions in what he's doing because he has told them that he is running away from the Lord. And so they ask him, so what are we supposed to do now? What do we do to you? Well, let's look at the answer. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault this great storm has come on you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this the men greatly feared the Lord, and made sacrifice to the Lord, and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Jonah tells the truth. The storm is his fault. He knows that it's his fault, and so he knows exactly what it will take to spare these men from death. He says, you got to get me off the boat. Uh, we're a long way from land, chief. You still have to get me off the boat. you got to throw me overboard. And I think it's, it's possible that God has revealed this to him in a prophetic way, but I think it's also possible that he simply wants to die. Because as we'll see, three times in chapter 4, he asked the Lord to kill him. And so it's entirely possible that he has the same death wish now. I'd rather die than carry out God's command. So throw me overboard, and at least if I get killed, I won't have to go to Nineveh. God has another plan for Jonah. 
And it's, but it's still possible he, that he thinks God is going to allow him to drown, and at least I won't have to go to Nineveh then. And initially, the sailors are not going to obey what he tells them. They try to row back to land. They go, we are not going to kill you. That would be evil. And you see, the irony of this is that these are pagan men who have more concern for his life than he as a follower of the true God has for theirs. Remember, he's gotten them into this. So who has better theology, the prophet of God or these pagans? These pagans. And in fact, these pagans, even though Jonah claims to be the worshiper of God, after they do what he has told them to do, what do they do? They worship God. They all of a sudden realize the real God is different than the ones we've been crying out to. And so they says they feared the Lord, which is a term for uh, reverential worship in the Old Testament. And they offered sacrifice, which is the way that worship was done. And they made vows. We're going to serve you instead of what we've been doing. Because all of a sudden, the actions of God lead them to repent. And interestingly, they don't lead the prophet to repent. Not yet. He's going to repent, but it's going to take him a while. He's going to have to go into the fish's stomach and think about it for a few days. But leads these pagans to repent and become worshipers of the true God. But not Jonah. God's power and you're going to see God sending. God's going to send the prophet, send the wind. Now he sends the fish. And he gets him safely out of the water. And Jonah is saved, but he doesn't know it yet. And I think it's a good time to see some things here in the, in the text that are, uh, that are true about God, that are always true. But they're pretty well illustrated here in this text. First of all, God does judge Jonah for his rebellion. Amen? He does judge. The storm comes. Jonah has to get out of the boat, into the storm, and then into the fish. Is that judgment? I have to say, that is judgment. But even in the midst of, his ju of the judgment that falls on Jonah, there's still grace, isn't there? There's still grace. God doesn't take his life. It makes him a little uncomfortable. But there's still grace. And even while Jonah is making these grand theological pronouncements, you know, it's like kind of, it's almost like you can see Jonah rocking back on his suspenders. Well, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the true God, Yahweh, the one who made the sea and the land. It's almost like, in contrast to you all, crying out to the moon god or whatever. Even while he's doing that, and even while his 
pronouncement is undermined by his actions, God is still gracious, and he is still at work on these pagan sailors so that they can see the truth of what he says, even if it's undermined by what he does. Is God's grace and his salvation contingent on me being a perfect representative of God? No. Is Jonah a perfect representative? No. Is he commended for not being? No. <laughs> but nevertheless, God's grace is being extended to other people is not contingent on me being a great example of it. Okay? God saves and has compassion on whom he will, and he, just as he has compassion on these pagan sailors. God is capable of helping them to see the truth, even though his own prophet is undermining the truth he's proclaiming. And that's good. It means God is far more gracious than we are sinful. Amen. Um, God still will accomplish his, his will of granting eternal salvation to people, even when his servants are reluctant to carry the message. And even when they do so hypocritically, God is still sovereign. And God so loves sinners that he will not let disobedience on the part of his servants interfere with the accomplishment of his will. And I think that's great. That's worth remembering. But it's also worth remembering this, that we get to, we have the privilege of carrying God's message the people who need to hear it. It's not simply our responsibility, it's also our privilege. Amen? Now, a lot of things we can apply from this little book of Jonah, and I just want to suggest a few things here at the end of chapter 1. That, number one, God is sovereign over all of creation and everywhere within it. Over all of creation and everywhere within it, God is sovereign. If the story of Jonah teaches us anything, it's that God is completely and totally sovereign. And there is nowhere that you can flee from him. Nowhere. And that's the negative side. That if, you're, if you've decided to be disobedient to God that there's nowhere you can go where you can get away because God is sovereign over the entire creation and every place within it. But let me give you the flip side of that, and this is the maybe the positive way of thinking of it. It also means that no matter how big a mess that I have got myself in, that there's nowhere where his arm doesn't reach me. There's no place I can go to flee from God, but there's also no place beyond His reach if I call out to Him and I'm in trouble. No matter what mess I get myself in, God is always able to pull me out. And that's good. Uh, number two, God loves those people. And He calls us to carry His message to them, just as he 
called Jonah to carry his message to the Ninevites, God calls us to carry his message to not just people like us, not just people we like, not just people that we think would be cool if they came to Christ, but to all people. Remember what Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, go and make disciples of what? What are the next two words? All nations. All nations. Not just white nations, not just wealthy nations, not just European nations, not just African nations, not just semi-Christian, non-Muslim nations. All nations are to be carried the gospel by God's people. All kinds of people, all varieties of people, all people, all over the world. One of the things I am proudest of about our church, by the way, as your pastor, is that we as a church have a history of reaching out to the people that are regarded as those people within our community. In fact, I had... I had someone ask me as we were getting ready to get the skate park off the ground and, you know, we had voted as a church to allow that to be constructed and we were working on that and so forth. I had someone ask me on the street who knew that I was pastor here. They said, why do you want to work with those kids? I said, well, because those kids need Jesus just like you. (laughs) okay it was a great statement all right but here's the thing okay same thing with the crossword cafe why do we have that because those kids need jesus just like you and just like me okay god calls us to go into the world to carry his message to those people whoever those people are to all of those to all nations, to all people, to everywhere around the world. So that God may be sovereign over every human being in the same way that he is sovereign over all of nature. Okay? God still loves those people. He loves these pagan sailors. He loves the Ninevites. And he loves disobedient children. He loves us all. And he wants all of us to have his message all right, the last thing, and this is, a, this is something that is fantastic. And if you don't get anything else out of Jonah, get this for sure in lights. God is far more gracious than we are sinful. Amen? God loves Ninevites and prophets, sinners and saints, sailors and preachers. God's grace extends to everyone who will bow their heart before him and say, I trust you. I will fear you and obey you and follow you. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, is the Son of God, who died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead. Anyone who will accept that message of salvation is loved by God and welcomed into his family. Even if, I've shared that with people and they always ask me, well, what about murderers? Yep, them too. How about rapists? Yep, if they 
repent and, and believe in Christ? Yep, them too. How about thieves? Yep, them too. How about adulterers? Yep, them too. Even idolaters like you, I tell them, okay? Even commandment breakers like you get in if you will believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. Even us, as sinful as we are, are loved by God. And so we have the opportunity to come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy and help in time of need because God is far more gracious than we are sinful. Amen? Let's pray.